Our scriptures this morning come from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and Luke chapter 10, verses 27. If you're using a Bible from the back, you can find Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, on page 151. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates Again, the second verse of scripture that I will read will come from Luke chapter 10, verse 27. And that's found on page 869. Luke chapter 10, verse 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. I want to point out one thing. In Luke 10, 27, Jesus, he adds the word mind to this command. May God bless the reading and the proclamation of his word. Just a little attention getter for the sermon. Sorry about that. We appreciate the work of um, all of our AV people. And when you think about how much money... There we go. I I take that back. I don't appreciate any of them. (laughs) No, we're, we're very grateful. Um... These, so I'm still not on, Dave. These uh, brothers and sisters 
um, serve us so graciously and so um, patiently and sacrificially. You know what the good thing about this is? We're getting this worked out, I trust, before we get in the middle of the sermon. So, (laughs) do you want me to use that instead? Okay. If I'm going to use that, I'm going to just take this off. I actually want to... um, exercise executive privilege just briefly as a pastor and welcome three people. One is Opal Vernig. Uh, We don't get to see Opal often. And uh, it's such a blessing to see you, Opal. We love you and we pray for you and we pray for you, Maury, as you face the unique challenges of life these days. And I want to add to that two brothers that um, are here quite often now. One is Josh Hayden, sitting on the front row by Jonathan, and the other is our newer friend, Derek Patrick. These two men have been unimaginably rescued from unimaginable bondage to sin. The stories are absolutely astounding, and I'm thankful for you guys being with us. And I'm especially thankful for the grace of God behind what has happened to you. And there are others in our presence who have experienced the same. As I was saying to my small redemption group study yesterday morning, every conversion is equally amazing because we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And we've all been made alive. I want you to pray especially for our dear friend Michael Copley who is in the hospital, but we think has been wonderfully helped, we think, especially by the grace of God in these last two or three days. He is anxious to get out tomorrow and to resume life at the Hobson home and to get back right on track with a seeking God and um, enjoying his time with our congregation. So please pray for Michael today. Now, I assume you are still in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This morning, we began, or actually begin, a two-month, eight-sermon series entitled, First Aid for the Family. The assumption of this relatively brief series is that the families of our church are like children at a wilderness camp where they do a lot of hiking, conquering obstacle courses, and competing in various ways. In the process of all of these activities, they get some poison ivy, they get stung by some bees, they fall down and scrape their knees, they get cut, they bruise themselves, and possibly they even break a finger. And for all of these maladies, they will need some first aid. My assumption is that all of the families of this church, in that sense, are like children at a wilderness camp. 
living in this world of sin and being yet sinful ourselves, all of our families are to some degree cut and bruised, and we need our wounds cleansed and medicated and bandaged. Thankfully, we're not in the ER. Thankfully, we don't need CPR. Thankfully, we don't need open-heart surgery, but we need first aid frequently. And I come this morning to remind you of what you know so well. That first aid is found in the Word of God. And so in this series, we're going to be looking at such remedies as devotion, leadership, communication, forgiveness, friendship, sacrifice, mission, and joy. And this morning, it will be my privilege to recommend the first aid of devotion. This medication, this treatment is needed just as much in the lives of those who are single. So if you're not a part of a family, know that this applies to you as well. But your pastors are especially burdened for and desirous of encouraging and helping the marriages and the families of our church during the summer. Now let me just quickly define devotion. Devotion could simply be defined in this way. It is earnestly and loyally committing ourselves and dedicating ourselves to a person or cause. That's what devotion is. Are you devoted to anything or to anyone? I hope you are. If you are, then you are earnestly and loyally committed to that person or that cause. In this case, the person is God and the cause is his kingdom. So with regard to the family, and this is a series for the family, devotion has as its goal every member of the family who is capable, obviously an infant isn't, every member loving, trusting, obeying, and serving God. That would be a devoted family. Now, this sermon is not simply another sermon on family devotions. I hope none of you said, well, here we go again. I'm going to feel guilty because they're going to hammer this thing of family devotions and we're not doing very well. Well, I don't want you to feel good about not doing well. But no, this is not another sermon on family devotions. This is a sermon on families that are devoted. If you could think of those two words, family devotions... Just take the S off of the word devotions and think of family devotion. This is not another sermon, as I just said, on family devotions. This is a sermon on devoted families. I want you to put the S on the end of the word family, not on the end of the word devotion. That is my burden this morning. Devoted families where every member, if possible, is personally devoted to God and where that is not yet a reality, at least my interest is encouraging mom and dad to create and to maintain an overall atmosphere in the home, an overall environment in the home of devotion to God. Such devotion that even your unconverted children see and breathe the air of devotion. 
devotion to God, and they grow up, and if they remain unconverted, they have to say, I remember in my home that dad and mom and the others who believed were all about loving God. And that kind of devotion can and ought to be attractive. In that sense, devotion is where we need to be sure to begin to apply first aid to our families. Nothing else is more important to the health of a wounded and bruised family than devotion to God. What's more important than that in terms of healing and health? That is where the healthy marriage begins. And that is where the healthy family begins. Now, let me focus very quickly on the helpful instruction that we receive from the text that Jason read to you just a few moments ago. Especially notice with me again verses 4 through 9. Here in these verses, we have God's description of the devoted family. And specifically, I think we find three things. I'm going to show them to you. One is found in verse 5. It is the source of devotion. The second is found in verse 6. It is the evidence of devotion. And the third is found in verses 7 and 8. And there we find the method of devotion. So, the source of devotion, put very simply, is love. The evidence of devotion is obedience. And the method of devotion is teaching. So let's look at these for just a few moments together. The source of true devotion found in verse 5 is simply this. Loving God with the entirety of our being. Notice the words. After establishing the fundamental creed of Israel's theology, sometimes called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The exclusivity and the unity of God is the foundation upon which all of Israel's theology was based. But having said that, Moses, in this sermon, and it is a sermon, in fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy is really three sermons, in case you didn't know that. It is Moses talking to Israel toward the end of his life, just before the conquest, to be led by Joshua and reflecting on the covenant that God had entered into and reminding the people of their desperate need to be obedient to God's commandments and to love him and to be faithful and to trust in his promises. And we're in the second sermon, the second speech of Moses, which actually began in chapter 4 and verse 44. And so after he lays this foundation, he says to them that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And I'm thankful that Jason read for us from Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, you saw the word mind added. We find the same in Matthew and Mark as well. But it just happens that Luke also pulls in the idea found here in verse 5 of might. 
with all of your might. And there the translation was with all of your strength. So really, the totality of our love for God should flow out of our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our energy and our strength. And God is calling his people through Moses to that kind of devotion rooted in that source. So what is the source of devotion to God? Is it first and foremost fear? No. It is love. And it is a love that captivates the entirety of our being. We are to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. That is the source of devotion. That is where it starts. But maybe you're asking, how do you get that kind of love? Where do I acquire that kind of love? I feel like I don't love God at all sometimes, and I feel that way too. And I made a comment on that in a brief post this week. The more I grow in grace, the more I feel that I have so little grace. When you're a young Christian, you think you have a a lot of grace and a little sin. And as you mature in your Christian life, you feel like you have a whole lot of sin and so little grace. In fact, that is a sign of grace that you feel so conscious of your sinfulness. But where does one get this kind of love? This degree of love, this all-captivating love, the answer is you have to experience it. And you know how you experience it? You leave Egypt and you get liberated from Pharaoh and you follow Moses. What? I'm not in Egypt. You are if you're not a Christian. I'm not in bondage to Pharaoh. You are if you're not a Christian. I don't have a Moses to follow out of Egypt. You do if you're not a Christian. Because the bondage of Egypt and the tyranny of Pharaoh and the leadership of Moses were all designed to be a picture of the coming Redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't yet been converted, you are in a bondage far worse than the Egyptian bondage. If you are not yet converted, you are under the tyranny of a tyrant far worse than Pharaoh. His name is the devil. And if you are not yet converted, you desperately need a Redeemer far, far greater and more glorious than Moses. But when you experience that, When you see your sinfulness, when you turn from that bondage, that spiritual bondage under the tyranny of the devil and flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive forgiveness of sin. You receive liberation. And your heart is overcome with grace and forgiveness. And the immediate response, the inevitable response to that is love. Love for God. How can you not love the God who so redeemed you? So when the question is posed, where do I get this all-encompassing, captivating love? You get it at the foot of the cross where you first call upon the name of Jesus to forgive you of your sin 
and to become the new sovereign in your life. And upon receiving it, your soul is overwhelmed with love. The problem is, because of remaining sin, we lose that love, don't we? We lose that first love, and it must ever be recaptured. This is what John teaches. He says, we love God because he first loved us. And it's the experience of love and conversion that gives us this love for God. But who actually loves God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength? The honest answer is no one. Well, three people did. Three people loved God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And two of them quit. The first two were Adam and Eve before they fell. And the only other person who has ever loved God perfectly with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength was our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it a sin for us not to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Pastor, you, you, you put a dilemma before us this morning. You're telling us that God word, God's word commands us to love him with all of our heart and soul, mind, and strength. But who can do that, this side of glorification? The honest answer is none. But it's still the ideal. It's what God desires. Can you imagine God saying, well, why don't you just love me the best you can with part of your heart? You don't have to love me with all of your heart. His goal is to bring us to the place where we love him with a sinless love. When I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then how much I know. That is God's ideal. God isn't going to lower his standard. It is still our duty to love him with the totality of our being. And to the extent that we fail to do so, yes, we are guilty of the sin of omission. But guess what? Because he loved God perfectly, there is forgiveness even for our imperfect love. And so we just live at the foot of the cross And we say, God, help me to love you as I ought. But to the extent that I have failed, I thank you that my Savior loved you perfectly and kept the first and the greatest of all commandments for me. And isn't it an encouragement to know that Jesus wants us to love God the way he loved God and that he is determined to help us to love God the way he loved God. And that's part of what is involved in growing in grace as Christians, and that's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us love God the way Jesus loved God. Now, that's all I want to say about the source. The source is, is God, and it is the love of God experienced in salvation which enables us to begin to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, what is the evidence of true devotion? Well, it's in our text. It's in the next verse. The source is is love found in verse 5. The evidence is obedience found in verse 6. Just notice verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now what I want to emphasize is that Moses is saying that the commandments of God need to be written on our hearts. What is written on our hearts? The commandments of God. Why are the commandments of God written on our hearts? Because God 
wants our love for him to evidence itself, to manifest itself in obedience. That is the first manifestation of love for God. It isn't the only. I'm going to comment on a few things in just a moment. But it's clearly the first evidence of loving God. This heart with which we're to love him is a heart upon which his commandments are to be written. He says that, I want these commandments to be on your heart. And I think many of you know that the great problem with Israel during the days of the Old Testament under the Old Covenant is that the vast majority of Israelites did not love God with all of their hearts. And he had to say to them, what you really need is a circumcised heart. But the promise of the New Covenant found in Jeremiah 31 is that when he establishes the New Covenant, he is going to write his law on our hearts. And in Ezekiel 36, he promises us that by giving us his Holy Spirit... He will cause us to walk in his statutes. Obedience is an evidence of love for God. But notice the order. It is first love and then obedience. It isn't obedience in order to love. It is love in order to obey. That is God's order. And that is an evidence. It is the first evidence of truly loving God. Now, maybe some of you are saying, if obedience is so essential, isn't that putting me in the dangerous place of legalism? And my answer is, no, no. Look, we need some clear thinking. God has commands. There is content. These words he speaks of in verse 6. He's going to elaborate on those words. They're going to come in the form of commandments. Commandments can be put on our hearts. And what keeps obedience from being legalistic is that it flows out of a heart, a heart that loves God. For you to desire to obey the word of God and the will of God and to keep the commandments of God does not make you to be a legalist. Listen, a legalist is a person who obeys God in order to have a right standing with God, in order to earn a righteousness with God, in order to obtain forgiveness from God. That's what legalism is. Legalism isn't a desire to obey God. Don't ever feel a false guilt for trying to be obedient. If you owe someone a debt, you're going to pay the whole debt. You're not going to just come close to it, and if you pay it right down to the last dollar and the the last bit of change, your friend isn't going to say, you're a legalist. That doesn't make you be a legalist. This week, I just went through Ephesians very quickly. You know how the epistles are usually divided into two parts. First, there's the doctrinal, and then there's the practical. And when you come to chapter 3, you start getting all of this practical instruction. And I think I'll just save you the time and, and do this for you very, very quickly. But in, in chapter, actually four, I should say. I'm sorry, I didn't mean three. In chapter four, verse 17, you tell me if this is a command or not, okay? I just want to know if this is a command or if this is just a suggestion. Verse 17, so this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You cannot do that any longer. Verse 26, 
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Suggestion or command? Verse 29. Let no corrupt, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. Verse 32. Be kind to one another. Chapter 5 and verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I remember I had a professor in seminary who said, isn't it interesting that we, we usually only see um, the command to be with regard to not getting drunk. We are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you know that Paul goes on and he talks to husbands and he says, hey guys, this isn't something I think might be a pretty good idea. You husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. You wives be submissive to your husbands. You children obey your parents. You servants obey your masters. You masters be kind to your... It's filled with ethical instructions and you cannot reduce them to be something other than a commandment. So... Does it make you a legalist to obey the second half of Ephesians? Only if you're doing it to find acceptance with God and to pay for your sins. But if you're doing it because you love God and because, according to the promise of the new covenant, he's written his law upon your heart and you want to obey him out of love for him because he redeemed you, you are not a legalist. I just wanted to make that very, very clear. John argues in his little epistle that obedience to the commandments of God is an evidence of grace. He says, if we say we love God and we do not keep his commandments, we are liars. And the truth is not in us. No, as I said, there are other evidences. It's not just obedience. Love for God just because of who he is is an evidence of grace. We love him first and foremost. We love his people. We love his gospel. We love his cause. We love his mission. I couldn't help but think this morning of our dear friends, Heath and Jessica and Dwayne and Kimberly. I have a question for you. What would, what would inspire a young couple, a promising young couple, the husband of which is a geologist with a wonderful job at Texas Gas, the wife who's a gifted school teacher, to kiss it all goodbye and go to the Horn of Africa with their little daughter. What would inspire a well-established couple like the Baldwins to sell all their possessions? Almost sounds biblical. Go to their home and see the stuff that's for sale as we did with the dames. And feel the willingness to let it go. What would possess people to do this? The answer is love for God. Love for his gospel. Love for his name. Love for his glory. Love for his cause. A deep desire that others might experience the same love of God. That's what moves them. You cannot, as John Piper says, but commend that which you cherish. If you cherish something, you will commend it. If you're not commending it, you don't cherish it. And that's really the key for us becoming more evangelistic, isn't it? It isn't manipulation by guilt. Isn't it? How many people did you witness to this week? It's, it's really like 
Did you fall more deeply in love with God and his gospel this week? Is his gospel becoming more precious? Is the value of a human soul becoming more precious? Is the desire that others might share in this great forgiveness becoming stronger and stronger? That's the motivation for evangelism. So so I'm not saying that obedience is the only evidence of, of having experienced the love of God. I'm just saying it's the first. But there are all these other things. And so we're going to talk about the family going on mission. Remember, this sermon is about the devoted family, not about family devotion. So I want you to keep thinking about the family. Is your family devoted to God? What efforts are you moms and dads making to help your family be devoted to God? Do you do anything in terms of the family as devoted to God, going on mission. We're going to have a whole sermon by that, and our dear friend Ryan Fullerton, one of the most gifted preachers in the entire Louisville area, will be preaching on family going on mission because he's a man whose, whose family evidences that kind of leadership. So that's all I want to say. What have we seen? We've seen the source of devotion is a wholehearted, entire human Devotion to God. What is the evidence of it? Um, Obedience that flows out of redeemed hearts that are so grateful that they just want (laughs) to, they want to please the God who made them and redeemed them and they want to live according to his will. That's the evidence. And finally, I want you to see with me the method of true devotion at least the method of how it can be cultivated. And I'm just going to give you a general answer to that as we listen to the rain. Very pleasant. No dangerous weather uh, in store, so everybody relax. God is speaking to us in nature. What is the method for cultivating this kind of devotion? Well, what did Moses say? He gives us the answer in verses 7 and 8. Notice them. Back to Deuteronomy. Here's what I want you to do, and I'm just going to tell you what he says in general and then see it. What he's going to say to us is the method is by establishing a Bible-saturated home. Okay? Do you hear that? If the source is love and the evidence is obedience, the method is to establish a Bible-saturated saturated, permeated home. And that is going to nicely break down into, I think, four things. That home needs to be characterized on the part of parents by diligent teaching. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them. What is the them? The commandments the will of God for how we should live. You shall teach them diligently. There's a convicting word. It's one thing for us as parents to say, you know, I'm trying to, trying to teach the kids. Are you diligent in that? Well, I'm not sure I'm so diligent, but I am trying to teach. That's not adequate. God wants us as parents to Diligently. Now you have to figure out what diligence means to you. I'm not going to lay a false standard on you and then you go around feeling guilty. 
you have to figure out what diligence means to you. And if you're struggling with legalism, then maybe you need to be careful about that. But most of us aren't struggling with legalism. We're struggling with slothfulness, and we need to be a bit more diligent. But you see that in verse 7, diligently teach them. So this perhaps could refer to uh, uh, the more formal efforts that we make in terms of family devotion. I don't want anybody to hear me today saying, I don't believe in family devotions. That, I think, was one of our failures as the Christmas. I don't think we did well enough at that. I'm, I'm not pleased. I wish we could go back. I have a lecture on 16 things I, could do, I would do if I could raise my kids again. And that would be one of them, to be much more consistent and regular in family devotion. I'm not down on family devotions. In fact, I think diligently teaching our children could well imply some system But I'm just not going to lay a guilt trip on you which says that you must have family worship every day. Our Constitution requires that. But I haven't found that verse in the Bible yet. But wouldn't it be great to have family worship every day? That would be wonderful. And if you can find 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes to open God's Word or some good book and teach your children and sing a song together and pray, wonderful. I highly commend it. Highly commend it. But I want you to hear me carefully because I think we have the tendency, I should perhaps speak only of myself, that if I do my family devotions every week, every night, then I have pretty much done all that I should do in order to create a devoted family. No, no, no. It isn't about family devotions, it's about a devoted family. And a devoted family is more than having family devotions. It's probably not less than that, but it surely is more than that. So we start with that, and then secondly we go on to what I would call naturally applied. What's naturally applied? The commandments. The commandments are to be diligently taught, but they're to be naturally applied. Look again. At his words in verse six or verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. When you sit in your house. Does that sound like formal necessarily? No. It, this is God saying through Moses, hey, just why don't you think about family devotions as something that can be done uh, very spontaneously, uh, very authentically, very informally uh, by parents who are thinking. You're walking with your son, you're walking with your daughter, you're walking with your children, you see something, you see a wonderful opportunity to apply the Word of God, and you say, hey kids, come here, let me show you something. Have you ever thought about why this is so beautiful, why this is so good, why this is so wonderful. You're watching a television program and a worldly value is set forth and you just say, hey, what'd you think of that? Do you think that's what God teaches? Or a disciplinary situation unfolds. The opportunities are manifold, but we have to think, we have to have our eyes open, we have to have our ears open, we have to be conscious of this. And so my question to you is, are you diligently teaching your children, and talking about the Word of God and its values as you sit. 
as you walk. Is it natural? We don't want artificial Christianity. We don't want just formal instruction. We want to be so real, so authentic, that it's very natural in all of the waking hours of the day, in our families, to be talking about God and His will and the world and so forth. It should be very, very natural. And the reason it's not natural is because we don't do it very often and it feels awkward to us. And I would especially encourage you fathers and you husbands to be, to be proactive about that. Cultivate that. Break that ice. It will become more comfortable. It will become more natural. It's beautiful. Your kids want to grow up, or you want them to grow up, so that they'll say, you know, in our home we talked about the things of God all the time. I've got to hurry and conclude, because we've got good things that lie just before us. And I just want to point out that these things should be continually discussed, not only diligently taught, naturally applied, but continually discussed. Because it says in verse 7 that um, you should do this when you lie down and when you rise. So here's the question. How long should family devotions last? Here's my answer. 16 hours. 16 hours? Yeah, because we usually have to sleep around 8. 8 and 16 is 24. Every waking moment of the day, that's how long family devotions should last or at least could take place. Don't be thinking about it as merely a 20-minute or 30-minute period or a 10-minute period. Be thinking of it, it's morning, let's think about God. It's time to go to bed. Let's reflect on the day and God. So it should be done continually. And finally, I want to say that this teaching of God's Word should be done in a way that is conspicuously displayed. Diligently taught, naturally applied, continually discussed, and conspicuously displayed. Where do you get that? I get that from what he says in verse 7. Bind them, that is the words of God, the Bible truths, as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. It was something that continually reminded people of the word of God. They actually put scriptures in little boxes on their foreheads. That's not a part of our culture, but I'll tell you what is. Verse, verse 9, it says, You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So guess what? It's okay to put Scripture on the mirror. It's okay to put Scripture on the table and on the refrigerator and on three-by-five cards and in your car and wherever you do. We are to be developing homes that are Bible-saturated. That's what families that are devoted look like. So, to conclude, what does a devoted family look like? I didn't say what do family devotions look like. What does a devoted family look like? It looks like a home where God is loved with all of the heart and soul and mind and strength. It looks like a home where the members desire out of love and gratitude to joyfully do the will of God and obey Him. It looks like a home where the Word of God permeates everything. It's taught. It's naturally applied. It's continually discussed. And it's conspicuously displayed. How are we doing, folks? <laughs> I don't think we're doing so well. I want to do better. I don't want to motivate you by guilt. 
But if you feel guilty, that's okay, because God the Holy Spirit is the author of guilt. What we want to do because God has made us aware of our deficiencies and our failures, and we feel badly about that, and is guilt, that's good. Guilt is good. If it takes us back to God and says, God, forgive me. Thank you for praying for that sin. Now help me to change. We, your pastors, want the families and the marriages, and yes, the singles of this church, to be devoted to God. And this kind of devotion is where we start in binding up our wounds and making ourselves more healthy families. Now, I'm not going to pray. I'm going to ask right now that Tim and Camilla Hope come up here for just a moment. And we need to be able to... um, We just use this microphone over here, Dave. Okay. Uh, What are we going to do? We're going to have a testimony, very brief testimony. Tim is... Do you all want to hear from Camilla or do you want to hear from Tim? <laughs> she, she's, this is kind of her just to come because that's not her style to, to be boisterous. Here is a couple who, and there are many others, who have demonstrated over the years, I think, a consistent and admirable uh, example of trying to develop a devoted family. And, and I've asked him if he would just take two minutes to share a little bit about how devote, the, the goal of devotion uh, was pursued by them. And, and then uh, I'm going to just quickly thank God for their family. And then we're going to move on to our commissioning of the dame. So, Tim, would you just share briefly, please? One of the things I'm, I'm sure about is that we probably none of that didn't fit. One of the things I'm sure about is that we were not nearly as devoted a family as we could have been and should have been. And whatever measure of devotion did rise in our home was only because God gave it to us. Hmm. And um, our family devotions were part of that. And um, what God gave us the grace to do with family devotions was to start over. Mm-hmm. And to start over. And to start over. Mm-hmm. And to start over. <laughs> over and over again, our whole life long. Um, the Lord helped us um, to teach our boys the Word of God, not just during our family devotion time, but we took opportunity, for example, I drove the boys to school uh, when they were in high school every day in that wonderful old brown pickup truck that just about all of you used at one time or another it was fondly called the beast. <laughs> and the three of us would sit crammed together in the front seat of that car and we learned a verse from each chapter of Proverbs and we'd rehearse those back and forth on the way to school. Amen. Um, I called both our boys last night to say, what do you remember about our devotion, singular? And I only say this, I say it because it's important, and I say it because my son told me to say it. And I threatened to call him up and put him on speakerphone so he could tell you. But what he remembered that put reality to all the things we tried to teach them and the way we tried to work out just day after day, the kinds of things Pastor Ted was talking about today, 
he'd get up early in the morning and see his dad sitting on the sofa day after day after day after day hmm. with his Bible, hmm. reading and praying. Amen. That's such a simple thing. Yes. But what it said mm-hmm. to our boys was that what we're trying to teach them out of this book is real to us. Amen. And if I could encourage you to do anything, it's to make sure it's real to you if you want it to be real in the day in and day out stuff of your family. If it's not real to you, it will not be real. When you rise up, when you sit down, when you walk by the way, it mm-hmm. just won't be. It's got to be real to you. Mm-hmm. Let these words be on your heart. Amen. And there are a thousand ways to work that out in in the daily stuff of life. Catechize your children. Over and over, catechize your children. That catechizing your children has fallen on hard times. Please do that with your children. So that they've got a working theology stored up in their hearts based on this book that will find it a way to work out in their lives when they face situations and they've got something to go back to. But more than anything else, make it real to you so that they'll see that reality in your lives and so that God, in His time and in His way, will make it real to them. We failed in a thousand, thousand ways. There's forgiveness with God. Mm. And there's grace to start over. So start over every day. Start fresh every morning. And ask God for grace to work that devotion out in every facet of your lives. Let me just stay right there. I I know that um, Tim and Camilla could both say so much more. And I hope that you all will seek them out for counsel. And on each of these sermons, we have someone who's going to come up and give a brief testimony. I just want to thank the Lord for... You guys in your home. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Tim and Camilla. Thank you for their example to all of us. Thank you for the fruit of their efforts to cultivate a devoted family. Thank you for their sons, their daughters-in-law, their grand-laws, their grandchildren, just the, the evidence of grace in this family, which, which came to them in part through this kind of leadership. We We praise you for that, Lord. Behind the good things we see in the hoax, we see a good, gracious, and glorious God. Continue to bless them in every way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. We are now going to enjoy for just a moment... uh, only about three moments.